0: Now, uh, I have a number of uh, readings from the Word of God, so will you turn first of all with me to Romans, Romans chapter 10, and verses 9 and 10, very familiar passages for us, or verses, Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Well, verse 8 for connection, what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. What magnificent verses, right? The Word of God that we proclaim, Paul says, results in a confession of faith, a testimony to the Lord that Jesus is Lord, a belief uh, that God raised Him from the dead, and the result is salvation. And with the heart we believe and are justified, with the mouth we confess and are saved. Wonderful, wonderful verses. Now, I'd like you to turn to 1st Timothy, chapter 3. 1st Timothy, chapter 3. <coughs> verse 16. 1st Timothy, chapter 3, verse 16. Great, indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. What is that? He, that's Jesus was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And then, if you'll go over to 1 John, 1 John chapter 1, so 1 John chapter 1, verse 6 through 10, 1 John chapter 1 verse 6 through 10 If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness we lie and do not practice the truth but if we walk in the light as he is in the light we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin if we say we have no sin We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. And then if you go to chapter 4, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, 1 John chapter 4 verses 1 through 3 Beloved do not believe every spirit but test the spirits to see whether they are from God For many false prophets have gone out into the world By this you know the spirit of God Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. May the Lord bless to us the reading of His precious Word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, We have confessed this morning by singing these hymns of praise that Jesus was wounded for our transgressions. He bore the iniquity, the transgressions of the many. He suffered in their place. He made atonement for their sins. He has given himself And we are called upon, Father, as we have read these scriptures, to to confess that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is risen from the dead. What a great mystery of godliness this is to us, that Jesus came in the flesh and has returned, taken up in glory to God, exalted at the right hand of the majesty on high. And we have sung that he is our hiding place. Where else can we go, Father, but to Jesus? We would come to you this morning then in the name and through your beloved Son, our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. We approach you. We draw near to you. Help us, we pray, to understand your word and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ thank you for these things. We ask them all in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 <clears throat> we have been studying together the life of a Christian. And if you are a Christian this morning, I don't know everybody, but if you are a Christian this morning, then these are important matters for us. They, these are things that are necessary to understand in order to acknowledge that we truly know Christ and are born of the Spirit or that we are Christians. And I've been trying to provide you with various descriptions that are relating to different aspects of the Christian life. So for example, we have considered together, what does a faithful Christian look like? And what does a growing Christian look like? And what is a struggling Christian? Does that sound familiar to us? A struggling Christian? And what about a praying Christian, which we considered last time? Now this morning I want to bring before you in this pilgrim life, this life of a believer, your life as a believer, the confessing Christian. The confessing Christian. A pilgrim's life is not easy. The life of a Christian is described as a life of a pilgrim, a stranger, an alien, a foreigner in this world. In fact, we discover that we are progressing from the moment we become born again, the moment we are born of the Spirit, born from above, that from that moment we begin to progress to the end. John Bunyan, in his Pilgrim's Progress, had a very clear perception and an idea of what that meant, didn't he? For instance, here is this man whom he calls Christian, who at the start, as you read that book, is running away with his fingers in his ears, or hands over his ears, crying out, uh, destruction, destruction. Because he recognizes that he dwells in the city of destruction. And the whole point of that book is to describe how he left the city of destruction and made his way to the celestial city, the city of God. So the Christian's life, if you are a Christian, is this kind of life. It is a life from the city of man to the city of God. And in between, on the way, on the journey... There are all kinds of troubles and difficulties that every one of us are faced with and meet. And Pilgrim's Progress describes those various trials and difficulties. Not difficulties, it's not easy to leave the world and to get to the celestial city. There are great trials and tribulations and hardships. Someone has said that if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? And perhaps the better question to ask would be, would you provide the evidence if there were none? Consider this morning then with me, I want to consider with you this, what I call the confessing Christian. I want to do it in three ways. First of all, We want to consider together the Christian and the faith. The Christian and the faith. I don't say the Christian and his faith. That is part of and connected to the faith. But the Christian and the faith. Secondly, uh, or I should say confessing the faith. Secondly, confessing your sins. What does that mean? And thirdly, confessing the Lord. Three simple things. Confessing the faith, confessing your sins, and confessing the Lord. In one sense, we are concerned with doctrine, and then with discipline, and then with discipleship. And so, as we talk about these things, I want to look at our faith your faith, my faith, the faith. I want to talk about when we talk about sin what it means to be forgiven. And as a result, to have fellowship with God. And then I want to talk about, finally, the love that we have to God that results in a friendship or a following after the Lord, which is discipleship. So these are the three things, right? The faith, your sins, and the Lord. And what does it mean to confess those things? So let's begin. Confessing the faith. A true confession of the faith requires, of course, the possession of faith. If you and notice, I said the true confession of the faith, because there are many people who confess faith, the faith, but who do not possess saving faith, believing faith. So it's easy to make a confession with your mouth, with your lips, of what the faith is and say, I believe that, and yet have no possession of salvation, no possession of saving faith. So it's a vain confession, empty confession. But a true confession of the faith will always require, to begin with, the possession of faith. In other words, in order to truly confess the Christian faith, you must be a Christian. And I think that's quite obvious in the Bible. So the faith has to do with my confession of it, my believing of it, which is also connected to my actual believing the gospel, trusting in Christ, confessing Christ. So I must know what I believe in the first instance and I must know secondly whom I believe in. So the confessing Christian is somebody who knows what content, what they believe because they have come to believe in someone, Jesus himself. The Lord Jesus Christ. So I know what I believe and I know whom I believe. That's what a confessing confessing Christian looks like. Now you know we have these phrases or these words like to confess or confessing or to make confession. And all of those words I think can be used with confessing, making confession of the faith. And so what does that look like? When I make a confession of the faith, what am I confessing about or to? Well, the faith is made up of statements, of declarations. And a confession is a declaration also, or a, a, an agreement with a, a, a believing in what I say I believe. That here is this body of truth content that I believe, that I confess that I acknowledge is the truth. And there it is. And there it stands. So a confession of faith is really an acknowledgement of the content of the faith. What is the faith that you believe about? What is it actually? So for instance, uh, Christians for centuries have been confessing the Apostles' Creed. Or they confess the Nicene Creed and a creed of course is derived from those opening words of the Apostles Creed and the Nicene Creed which begin like this I believe or we believe but I believe in God Almighty the maker of heaven and earth and then you go on I believe in Jesus Christ his only son I believe in the Holy Spirit and so on so I believe I confess, I acknowledge, credo. That's the Latin word for I believe, credo. I believe the creed. This is what the creed says. And Christians have been confessing these kinds of things for years and centuries. One of the most beautiful, magnificent of all confessions of faith is the Belgic Confession. And the opening lines of the Belgic Confession in Article 1 go like this. We all believe with the heart and confess with the mouth. And then follows the content, the body, the truth. We all believe with the heart and confess with the mouth. That sounds a lot like Romans 10, right? 9 and 10. Confessing with the mouth, believing in the heart. Notice that being saved is what you find in Romans 10, right? 9 and 10. If you believe that Jesus is Lord and believe or confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be what? Saved. That's the consequence. And this is not a faith that I possess to believe the faith. I am given faith. I am unable to believe because I'm dead in trespasses and sins. I'm in bondage to sin. I'm in iniquity. I'm in transgression. I'm guilty. I'm wicked. I'm sinful. How can I choose such glorious spiritual truths that would release me from my bondage like Jesus is Lord, like Jesus is risen from the dead, which is the gospel, right? Right? So I confess and believe in a nutshell the gospel which is the lordship of Christ over everything. And not only that, but that this Jesus who I say is Lord is exalted to the right hand of God because he's risen from the dead. I have a living Lord, a sovereign Lord, a living Savior and so on. So if I believe and confess, believe in my heart, confess with my mouth, Paul tells me you will be saved. Because with the heart you believe and are justified and with the mouth you you confess and are saved or you believe and are saved. So notice being saved, which we use that expression. I am saved, you are saved. Becoming a Christian then, which is being saved, involves these two statements. Jesus is Lord and Jesus is risen from the dead. So I must believe, to be a Christian, at least this very basic fundamental level in acknowledging the Lordship of Christ and the exalted Christ himself. He has risen from the dead. I believe that Jesus is Lord. I believe in the resurrection of that Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Athanasian, the Athanasian Creed, is another beautiful creed, and it goes something like this. It says, Whosoever will be saved before all things... It is necessary that he hold the faith. Which faith, except everyone do keep whole and undefiled, without doubt he shall perish everlastingly. And then, and the faith is this. And then you got, we believe, we believe, we believe, we believe. Confession of what it is. The church has always had confessions. We have a confession. The church has always had statements of what they believe. I mean, check every website, every good website at least, on a church, right? They should have a a doctrinal statement. This is our belief. This is what we say we believe. And then they give all the content. It's remarkable how limited content is by many churches today. Just a couple of lines. And yet you could say so much about God, couldn't you? That would take up pages and pages. Robert Godfrey has said that we live in a church time and an age of the church that is shrinking because of its starvation. And what is desperately needed, he says, is a clear and fresh uh, communication of the glorious truths of the gospel once again that you find in the confessions. It might be better to say that you find in the word. Of God himself. One of the most beautiful confessions, personal confessions I ever read was by B.B. Warfield. It's a magnificent handwritten out, he wrote it by himself I should say, confession of what he believed. And he wrote I believe and then he went through all the, the content of the faith. And what he believed. You should try writing out sometime. What do you believe? Try it. Then you'll find out what you believe, what you know about what you say you believe. The author of the Belgic Confession was a man by the name of Guido de Bray. And he, he wrote the Belgic Confession in the year 1561. It's a long time ago now, 500 years plus. And six years later, in 1567, he was being taken out, or he was in a prison cell then to be taken out, to be hanged in the public square. In, that was in the month of May. In the month of April, he wrote a letter to his wife. And this is what he said in that letter to his wife. He says, Catherine Ramon, that was her name, my dear and beloved wife and sister in our Savior, Jesus Christ, remember that I did not fall into the hands of my adversaries by mere chance, but through the sovereign providence of my God who controls and governs all things the least as well as the greatest how then can harm come to me without the command and providence of God when I was arrested I used to say to myself so many of us should not have traveled together we were betrayed by this one and by that one we ought then not to have been arrested With such thoughts, I became overwhelmed until my spirits were raised by the thought that I'm here because of the providence of God. And then, in the month of May, the very next month, they were taking him out to be hanged publicly along with another Christian in the marketplace. Because they had acted contrary to the commands of the regent and had celebrated the Lord's Supper, And before going out to his death, he said to the other prisoners, he says, my brothers, I am condemned to death today for the doctrine, for the doctrine of the Son of God. Praise be to him. I would never have thought that God would have granted me such an honor. Oh, there's a man who believes, who knows what he believes there's a man who's prepared to lay down his life for what he confesses, for what he believes and what he knows is to be the truth. I'd like to be that man. Can we say that kind of thing that Guido de Bray said 500 years ago? That what happens to me in my life is not by chance, but by the sovereign determination and purpose of a sovereign God who does everything for my good, whether it's to lead me to the scaffold, or to cast me into prison, or to cause me to have cancer, or whatever it might be. It's by the glorious disposition of a kind, benevolent, good, heavenly Father. you believe that? That's what we ought to believe, right? You see, a conviction of the truth, of what the truth really is, is going to help you think like that, be like that. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12, the Apostle Paul said, to Timothy, says, This is why I suffer, Timothy, as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have what? Believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard that, keep that, which I have entrusted to him until that day. I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced. Now there's a man who knows what he believes, and who he believes. When you get to the end of 2 Timothy, right, that's in the first chapter, but in the the last chapter, chapter 4, he says these incredible words to Timothy, he says, I have kept the faith. The faith. I have kept the faith. What does that mean? I've kept the faith. You see, to confess something is to say something about whatever it is that you are confessing. Now, I dare say we we make confession or confess many, many things in the day which are simply agreeing with others, agreeable statements, whatever they might be. But when we read 1 Timothy 3 verse 16, Great indeed is the mystery of godliness, and then comes a confession, right? He was manifested in the flesh. That's the incarnation. You believe in the incarnation. He was vindicated by the Spirit, by His resurrection from the dead. He was seen by angels. He's preached among the nations. He's believed on in the world by you and me. He was taken up to glory. That's like a mini confession of faith, right? One verse. One verse. Lots of things in that verse that we confess, that we believe. So a confession is a revealing of the knowledge that I have of the content. <clears throat> knowing what I believe, knowing whom I believe. Now you know a Christian of course has specific limitations to their knowledge and their confession. What do I mean by that? We don't believe in Buddha. We don't believe in Allah. There are limitations in our confession. Well, who do you believe? I believe in the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I believe in God, the Holy Spirit, and all the content associated with this triune God. I don't believe in the gods and the idols of the world. I believe in the God Of Scripture. That's what I believe. So that's what I confess. And the remarkable thing about being saved, being Christian, being born again, is that you are given this ability to know God, this knowledge of God, which comes through His Word. And knowledge about what is God like, who is God, what does God do, what does God look like, and so on—all of these kinds of things. Who is Jesus Christ? Why did He come? Who is the Holy Spirit? What does He like? What does He do? I mean, it's endless, isn't it? This content of truth that we say we know, and if we know it, we ought to confess that body, that faith. Right? That's what we confess. I'm not confessing to you my experiences. You don't want to know my experiences. They're of no matter. I'm not expressing to you what I feel. Because my feelings go up and go down and they're all over the place. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in, like the Apostle Paul says, to be able to declare I know whom. Notice, I know, knowledge, whom, Jesus, I have believed. And I am convinced of it. And it's only the Holy Spirit, is it not, who convinces me of the truth. And that comes to us in saving faith through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, changing our minds and our hearts to believe saving truth and this gospel that we confess. Now, I'd like to turn you to turn with me to 1 John, again, chapter 4, which we read. So, take your Bibles, go to 1 John, chapter 4. Helpful to see this. So in First John four, you notice what uh, the provisos that the Apostle John lays upon believing. Beloved, verse one, "Do not believe every spirit, right? So I don't believe every spirit. Well, how, how do I know which is true and which is not, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So there's many, many out there saying a false gospel. Test the gospel. How do you do that? With the word, right? Test it against the word. Now look what he says in verse 2. He says, by this you know the Spirit of God. Meaning, you have the Spirit. You know what God says. By this you know the Spirit of God. Here it is. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God now that's not just you opening your mouth and saying I believe Jesus lived that's not what it is it's an acknowledgement of what the incarnation is and what it means that the eternal God became Emmanuel, God with us, dwelt among us, the Word became flesh, we have seen His glory, we have beheld Him, He is the truth, full of grace, and truth, and so on. All that it's about Jesus in the flesh, that's what I confess. Not just, I believe Jesus lived long ago, in a body. No, that's not what is much deeper than that. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Now we just read in Romans 10 that we confess that Jesus is Lord, which means he's God. And now here are some who say Jesus is not from God or Jesus is not of God. What is that? uh, John says that is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is in the world already. Now go to Second John, next book, Second John verse seven. So many deceivers, second John verse seven, many deceivers have gone out into the world. From first John four, right? Those who do not confess Jesus in the flesh, many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist, watch yourselves. You see what he says now why does he say watch yourselves because it's easy to be deceived watch yourselves then look at verse 9 everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God whoever abides or remains in the teaching has both the Father and the Son now you see what he says there in verse 9 he talks about the teaching what is the teaching Everybody who has the teaching, well, that's the body of truth. And what is the body of truth that we confess about? It is about Jesus coming in the flesh. That's what it is. That's what we confess. And that the teaching, the body of truth, is nothing less than the doctrine that we confess and we believe. So you as a Christian this morning, you have a confession. You have a statement of faith. You have a personal statement of faith. What is it that you believe? Now listen, your personal belief might differ from what the church might believe. You might have your own ideas. Or do we say, here's this body of truth that we as a congregation accept and believe. And we all believe it. And we're not swayed by it. New ideas come, we cast them out if they don't match the Word of God, because all confessions are derived from the Word of God. They are not the Word of God. The Word of God is our only authority. But every confession ought to be derived and say what Scripture says about particular content. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, sin, salvation, angels, and so on. So you have a confession. I urge you to hold it. I urge you to confess it, believe it. Alright. The Christian, the confessing Christian, confesses the faith. But secondly, the confessing Christian confesses their sin, right? So now, it's not something outside of me that I'm talking about, the body of truth, but it's something inside. My sins. So sin is such a problem, isn't it, for every Christian? there's not one true Christian who would say you know sin is not a problem no sin is a big problem it's a huge problem right in fact as we know now that we are Christians it's everyone's problem it's everyone's disease it's everyone's calamity everybody is guilty of sin there's a universal thing called sin that infects everybody from the womb from conception and it Gets demonstrated the moment, even in the womb, comes out, the baby comes out of the womb and manifests itself as a sinner, as sinful. And every one of us is like that, and has been like that. So sin, the question is, well what is it? Well sin is not a mistake. Let's be clear about that, right? Sin is much more than a mistake. Sin is a violation of God's commandments. So we use, we use words like iniquity or transgression. I mean, we, re- you, we read it together in uh, Isaiah 53. And in Psalm 38, David makes that personal conviction, uh, confession about my iniquities, my transgressions. I mean, this is what Adam and Eve did in the garden, right? They sinned. What was that? It was a a disobedience, a violation of what God had commanded them. They violated the command, they disobeyed the command, they broke God's law. And every single human being ever, except Jesus, has broken, violated God's law. Thank God you are not justified by the law, right? Because you can't be. You can't keep it. None of us can it's only Jesus, our Lord, who kept the law perfectly. If you read 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, it describes what sin is. It says, sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness. That's what sin is. It's not, sin is not just an absence of law. Sin is not just being without law. No, sin is an act of lawlessness against God Himself. It's a wanton, deliberate disregard and disobedience to what God has made known. So if you read catechisms, like I do, you know, wonderful occupation, you read catechisms, and one of the catechism uh, questions is this profound statement, what is sin? What is it? What is sin? And the answer is, sin is any lack of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. So, I don't measure up, lack of conformity, sin. I transgress, I break the law, sin. That's what it is. That's a good definition, I think, of what sin is. So if somebody says to you, what is sin? Well, you can say, it's a lack of conformity to the law of God and it's a transgression of the law of God. That's what sin is. And Adam's sin, as we all know, plunged every single one of us into the same state of sin and of misery. And the result of what Adam and Eve did in the garden was that every human being born lacks righteousness, right? Isn't that Romans chapter 3? There is No one righteous. Not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who is good. None. And Isaiah 53 tells us that we have all gone our own way. Sin, right? So we lack righteousness. But it's much deeper than just lacking righteousness. It is a corruption. A corruption internally, inwardly, of and by sin. Both original... Adam, and actual, my actual sins that come from being fallen in Adam. So much so that, like Adam, every human being has lost communion, lost fellowship with God, and is under the wrath and the curse of God, so that we are all liable to the miseries of this life, which ultimately manifest themselves in death, and even in hell itself. That's why Jesus came. To prevent you and me from that. So every Christian, if I were to ask you, I would know that you were a Christian by your answer. Every Christian would say, you're right. That's true of me. I was corrupt. I was bankrupt. I was spiritually ungodly, immoral, wicked. I was all of that. I was deprived and depraved I was corrupt so much so that yes I'm culpable along with everybody else and culpable with Adam that's me a true Christian would confess that they have no problem, that's me that's what I was it's the grace of Jesus that came and Christ himself came and brought salvation and delivered me from that condition that there's no escape from That's salvation, isn't it? This, by the way, is how you know that Romans 10 verses 9 and 10 is so good. Because you have this picture now as a believer of what sin is and what sin has done and then you have this remarkable thing that I believe, I do believe that Jesus is Lord and that God has raised Him from the dead and the consequence of that is I am saved. How good Romans 10, 9 and 10 is. And the question is, do you believe that and do you confess that? Because that's the true Christian. And the true Christian gets there, Romans 10, 9, 10, by, yes, an actual confession of sin. That is true. So confessing and believing in the first place, lead me to salvation, you will be saved, Romans 10, 10. And that's my starting point. And what is God doing while I am going through this process of trying to understand and being convicted? Well, God is convicting me. God is drawing me. God is bringing me. God is opening my eyes, opening my heart, opening my mind, opening my eyes to myself and to himself. That's what salvation brings. So much so that the apostle in that same chapter in Romans 10 says in verse 13 that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So much so that everyone in Romans 10 verse 11, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will not be put to shame. Not be ashamed. Because we know it to be the truth. And we love it, we cherish it, we feed our souls upon it. And in that very same chapter, how can I believe that gospel? Well, you need a preacher. You need the word to be proclaimed and so on. But the preacher is not enough, is it? You need the Holy Spirit who brings faith. So that in Romans 10 verse 17, so faith comes by hearing. Hearing what? Hearing the word of Christ. Salvation. It's beautiful, isn't it? This is how you came to faith in Jesus. All of these things are what have come to pass. So my initial believing, when I first believe the gospel, is actually a confession of sin. Yeah, I do acknowledge my sin, and I acknowledge my sins, that's true. And I also acknowledge my sinfulness. I'm inclined to sin all the time. We acknowledge that we're guilty. We acknowledge that we're unrighteous. We acknowledge that we're ungodly. I'm complicit. I'm culpable. I'm corrupt. I acknowledge it all. It's true. That's what the gospel has shown me. If the gospel doesn't show you that, then how can you be saved from it? But the gospel does. The gospel shows you what you're like before God and it shows you what Jesus Christ has done for you to deliver you from that. Because that's the language we use. You shall be saved. Saved. Saved from what? Saved from my sins. Saved from the end of hell and judgment. Saved. 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 All by grace. Sovereign grace, right? Free grace. Out of the rich love and rich mercy and deep love that God has revealed in His Son in Christ Jesus. And now that I am saved, Paul, sin is still a problem for me, right? I've still got these things that cause me havoc. So I find that even though I am now a believer, having made this initial confession that Jesus is Lord and I believe that God raised him from the dead and I am justified by faith and so on and I am saved, I still find that I sin. So what must I do? How do I handle that problem, which you all have? Every day of your life. Well, that's First John one nine. That if you confess your sins, He, God, is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That word confess, homologeo, to say the same thing. To say the same thing that God says about your sin. That's what to confess. If we confess our sins, if I say the same thing about my sin that God says about it, that's confession. And if I do that, John tells me that God is faithful and just to forgive me my sins and to cleanse me. Okay, Lord, on what basis can you keep on forgiving me? Because it says... If I confess, you're faithful and you're just. So every time I confess, you're faithful and you're just to forgive me and to cleanse me. How do you do that? The Father does it on the basis of the Son's death. So Jesus is not dying and needs to die again and again and again and again for God to forgive me, to forgive me. No, He makes a single, one-time sacrifice for all time, for all of us. And he doesn't have to offer himself again. So that when I confess my sins as a Christian, I go to the Father and I remind him of his Son and what his Son has accomplished for me. Because isn't that 1 John 2 two? I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father who is Jesus Christ, the Righteous One, and... He is the propitiation for our sins. Not only our sins, but the sins of the whole world, meaning the sins of all the other that are the elect of God. Now listen, this is the gospel. This is the benefits and the fruits of redemption that initially being saved, Romans 10, 9 and 10, leads me to this relationship with God whereby I am a confessing Christian. Confessing my sins. Because when sin comes, it breaks fellowship, right? And in order to restore fellowship, I must confess my sins. Say the same thing with God or as God says. And then God restores me. And I go on. And that's the Christian life. So that the Christian life is a continual life of repentance. As Luther or Calvin would say. It's an ongoing believing and an ongoing confessing and an ongoing repenting and an ongoing forgiveness and fellowship with God. So this confession of 1 John 1:9 is not that I not so that I will be saved, but it's because I am saved and I am desirous of being restored to fellowship. Romans 10:9 and 10 is that initial salvation, my confession, Jesus is Lord raised from the dead. But 1 John, 1 John 1, 9, is my confession not to be saved, but to continue in fellowship with God or to have fellowship restored by the grace of a faithful and just God. Now you know confession of sin is a biblical practice, right? It's an Old Testament practice. Think of Aaron the high priest. He confessed the sins of the nation on the head of a goat. And then a man picked that goat up, put it on his shoulders and went into the wilderness and left the goat there. And the anticipation is that some beast would come and tear that animal, which is sin, to shreds, and it's gone. It's no more. It's not going to come back and say, hi, I'm back in the camp. No, it's out there to be destroyed and that's what happened to it. So Aaron made confession. Well, think about King David, right, in Psalm 51. He makes his personal confession of his sins with Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite to God. Oh, how personal that is, a confession, right? I, 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 I have done this, God, against you. Have mercy on me. It's personal confession, right? So... David writes in Psalm 32 verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not cover up. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Notice the iniquity of my sin. How bad is sin? It's iniquitous. So you forgave the iniquity of my sin. I mean... What a blessing to be forgiven, right? Psalm 32, 1. Blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven. Blessed is the person whose sins have been forgiven and washed. What about Daniel? I mean, Daniel prayed, didn't he, and confessed his sins and the sins of his people in Daniel chapter 9. So the Old Testament teaches us to confess sins. So does the New Testament. Even John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3 It says that the people were coming to him to be baptized and as they came, they were confessing their sins. Except the Pharisees, right? Whom John the Baptist pointed at and said, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath, to come bear fruits in keeping with repentance? You don't have the right confession. You don't believe. So you don't receive the forgiveness of God. That was them. Well, what about in Acts chapter 19, right? In the Ephesian believers. Think of the Ephesian believers in Acts chapter 19. The Bible says that they confessed and divulged their practices. And then they had a big bonfire, a burning in the public square where everybody took their books of magic and sorcery and threw them into the fire. And that was proof. I'm done. No more. It was a confession. It was a public confession. You see, in order to be in fellowship with God, you must confess to the Lord your sins and thank God that He's faithful and thank God that He's righteous, He's just to forgive us and to cleanse us. Now, you cannot say, or I should say, you cannot sin and then say at the same time, I have fellowship with God. That would be number one, a lie. That would be number two, walking in darkness. That would be number three, you're not practicing the truth. That's all from 1 John. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with God. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. You need that cleansing, right? Every day. You can't exist then as a Christian without confessing your sin. We must acknowledge that we sin, that we have sin, we must confess it. And God's good to us, right? You see, confessing sin is what it means to really be a Christian. A Christian is always confessing sin. Ought to be. Because we're troubled by it. James even tells us that we should, in James 5, verse 16, confess our sins one to another. Why should I do that? Maybe I've sinned against you. You've sinned against me. We must sort it out. Confess our sins to one another. Now, we don't go about rehashing our sins in public, right? So I'm not going to call upon you, each one of you, to stand up and tell me, give me the whole account of your sins. We don't do that. You tell God that. You tell God. You don't have to tell me. But if you sin against someone, you should tell them and confess and ask for their forgiveness. And how 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 much or how often should we do that? All the time, right? Didn't Jesus say seventy times seven? There's no limit. If someone keeps coming to you and says, look, I sinned against you, please forgive me. You can't say, no, I don't believe you. Aha, I don't believe you this time. Can't say that. Jesus says, you forgive. You forgive. Because you see, if you won't forgive someone else, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you your sins. So as the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive others. Colossians chapter 3, verse 13. Now, that whole way of living is a discipline, right? Confessing again and again to God. Well, thirdly, I must hurry. Confessing the Lord. Confessing the Lord. You'll notice in Romans 10 verse 9, it urges us to confess Jesus as Lord. In other words, to acknowledge His Lordship, who He is. In other words, Jesus is who He says He is. And you remember that great hymn in Philippians chapter 2 by the Apostle Paul. When he's describing the humiliation of Jesus and the exaltation of Jesus. And what does he say there in chapter 2, verse 11? That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall what? Shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day, every knee, every tongue is going to make that confession that Jesus is Lord. Now, you know, when the Lord Jesus lived here on earth, among the Jewish people, among the Jewish leaders in John chapter 9, you remember that great passage of the blind man, who was such a theologian, such an incredible theologian, right? And he's just convicting the Pharisees all the time. It says there that the Jewish leaders had said that if anyone confessed Jesus to be the Christ, Jesus to be Messiah that they were to be put out of the synagogue excommunication so if if you said you believed that Jesus was the Messiah and there were lots who believed right? remember Simon Peter who do you say that I am you are the Christ the son of the living God you are the Messiah you are the Christ if they didn't if they were confessing Jesus, they were to be put out. They were excommunicated, which had massive consequences on their personal lives. Family life. In John chapter 12, <coughs> in verse 42, it says that many of the authorities believed in Jesus, but because of the fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they might not be put out of the synagogues. So notice, they said they believed, but a little pressure from the Pharisees, no, I'd rather stay in the synagogue. (coughs) In other words, the fear of man causes us to refrain from confessing the Lord. And to not confess the Lord is essentially to deny Him. That was Peter's problem, right? That was his dilemma in the courtyard. Someone said to him, You were with Jesus. And he says, No, I was not with him. I don't even know the man. Fear of man. He didn't confess Jesus. The writer to Hebrews tells us this beautiful verse in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Since we have a heavenly calling, we should consider Jesus the apostle and the high priest of our confession." The source of our confession, the content of our confession is Christ. And we must confess Christ. When the writer to the Hebrews says we should consider Jesus, that word consider means to contemplate, it means to observe, it means to look upon, consider, and think about. So if I have a relationship to Jesus, because that's what you mean if you say you're a Christian, if I have a relationship to Jesus, I should confess it, right? I mean, think about your relationships with your spouse. If I'm with Chris and I'm, we're talking with somebody else and they don't know who we are, I might say, this is my wife, Chris. An introduction. But will I say, this is my Savior, Jesus? Do it easily with my spouse and my friends. Oh, this is my friend, John. Or this is my friend, Bob. But what about Jesus? Confessing Jesus as Lord. You see, a relationship is an expression of knowledge an affirmation of an acquaintance at its very basic level. I know that person. I'm acquainted with that person. But haven't we already talked about how, how much do you know? I confess the faith. I know a lot from the Word of God. And I know about myself, how sinful I am and so on. So we confess the Lord because we love the Lord, right? We love Him because He first loved us. I am His and He is mine. So John writes in that same chapter, 1 John chapter 4, he says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God, so we have come to know, knowledge, and we have come to believe, confession, The love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. So the confessing Christian knows the faith. Confesses it. The confessing Christian knows their sins. Confesses them. The confessing Christian knows the Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ. And confesses him. And you know that all of that, when you package it together, is expressed by the New Covenant of Jeremiah 31. And in the New Covenant of Jeremiah 31, you read these beautiful phrases, right, about relationship. For instance, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Relationship. You read about redemption. I will forgive their iniquities and their sins. I will remember no more. And it speaks about a recognition. They shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, and I will put my law in their hearts and write it on their minds or their hearts. Recognition. So, I have a relationship that has been secured by redemption and I recognize it and I know the Lord and I go on to live for Him. And the result of that is three things. Here they are. You will walk with God, you will work for God, and you will witness for God. That's a confessing Christian. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your good word that you've given to us. Thank you for the scriptures that teach us so many things about what it means to be a confessing believer. Help us to believe these truths, Father. We have each one of us confessed that Jesus is Lord, that he has risen from the dead, that he came in the flesh, that he is our Savior, that he has made atonement for our sins, that he is seated at your right hand in the majesty on high, interceding for us, living in the power of an endless, indestructible life. He is able to save to the uttermost all those who come to him. Thank you for grace. Thank you for mercy. And thank you, Father, for your great love for us in giving us your Son. Now help us to leave this place believing and confessing, increase our faith, strengthen our faith, deepen our love, and give us a holy hatred for sin. Each one of us we pray. So we praise you and worship you for your word, and ask that the Holy Spirit would instruct us and teach us in your ways, and to God alone be all the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.